Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're about to watch a video here that I interviewed Father Maudsley, and um, I just want to say something before we get into this. We are going to talk about the Jewish question. This is a very contentious question. Um, we did our best to make the proper distinctions, you know, to make the distinction between a person and an ideology and Israel and the person and that sort of thing. If at any point people are offended by the idea that, we're, you know, he just says the Jews and he's not being distinct, uh, making distinctions and things like that, you got to understand something. This is just how people talk. If I was to talk about Mussolini and the Italians, does that mean I believe every single thing about every Italian? No, uh, it's just that's how we talk, okay? So don't be so sensitive. Um, also, um, I suggest you read Father Maudsley's whole series where he talks about this because this book that we're going to talk about is a culmination. And um, please have an open heart and an open mind. And uh, that's all for now. Enjoy the show. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I am back with Father Maudsley, one of my favorite priests to interview, and he has just released a new book. It is the second installment of If, of if You Believe Moses. I have the uh, pre-release copy here, so if you get it, you won't have that line there, but uh, beautiful cover. And um, it's about the conversion of the Jews at the close of history. So today we're going to talk about some things that are sensitive um, provocative, scriptural, and, and part of tradition, but not really politically correct in the stuff you're used to hearing today. We're going to talk about the end times, the conversion of the Jews, the Jewish question, which I think has a lot of relevance within the Israel-Palestine conflict that's heated up. So before we continue, Father, how are you? Very well, thank you. Excellent. Um, so, Father, we're talking about the Jews and the apocalypse. What is what do they have to do with each other? Why why would we even link them? Are people are we saying that the Jews are the apocalypse or what is the context here? Well, Jesus is the true Messiah and to reject Jesus for a lot of people who either they've not heard of him or they've never tried to keep the old covenant, they're not necessarily going to be looking for another Messiah. They don't believe in any of that. But if you've been brought up, I mean, through centuries to believe God is going to send a Messiah and you reject Jesus, then you look for a false Messiah. And the whole world is suffering that now. And a lot of it has come into the church. Um, and that's my concern, really, that Catholics, we need to be Catholic. We need to uphold our traditions, uphold the faith intact. And if we do that, then it will have a beneficial effect for the whole world. But if we give way to false messiahs, that basically ends with the antichrist, the anti-messiah. Christ means messiah. Um, and so it's basically everyone's concern. And it shows how we're all responsible for all. You can't just hide away and think it, it doesn't touch you. If we don't fight the Christian fight, um, there'll be a spiritual slaughter. Okay, yeah. And um, we should add, you know, we start talking about things like Antichrist. Um, people get up in arms when you say, well, the Antichrist, it's prophesied through the various traditions and and also just kind of reading scripture properly that he'll be of at least Jewish descent. And the thing is, this is my reading, Father, maybe you can elaborate. It seems to me it has to be that way. Um, 
if someone's going to convince the world, which is what the Antichrist is going to do, if he's going to convince the world that he's the Messiah, as prophesied in the book talking about the Messiah, he's going to have to fit the description. And it's pretty clear that, um, well, even Ben Shapiro, I was, I saw some clip where he was blaspheming our Lord, which he's done many times. Um, and, uh, he was talking about how the Christian understanding of the Messiah doesn't fit the mm-hmm. scriptures, doesn't fit his yeah. rabbinical understanding because he's not a political leader of the house of David, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're going to look for this guy and he's going to have to be of the house of David in some way. So how can he not be a Jew? It's not about anti-Semitism or whatever. It's just about the reading of the scriptures and being faithful to them. Before we continue, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to say thank you to all the subscribers who have signed up for YouTube memberships and for... um Substack memberships. Um, there are multiple tiers that you can sign up on YouTube if you're into that, as low as $3 a month. Um, I haven't really asked for money very much in the past. I've sold some products and sort of things like that, but I wasn't in a position to honor the commitments necessary for subscribers, for paid subscribers, but I'm in that position now. So sign up if you'd like to be able to get early access to stuff. Uh, you know, the, in the future, there'll be members only, Q&A type things. Um, and also um, premium articles at the Substack. So if you're into reading, I suggest you sign up there. You can sign up for as little as $3 a month on YouTube. I think it's $8 a month on Substack. And um, thank you to all of those who have supported, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. Right. The, the promised seed from Genesis 3 is going to be a son of Abraham of the house of Judah, a son of David. He's come to restore the kingdom of Israel. But we should understand that Jesus has done that globally, universally, spiritually. He's fulfilled it all. This is the mistake that people like Shapiro make when they say they want a Messiah who brings visible peace on earth. They want to see it now as accomplished. That's too easy for Jesus. He multiplied the loaves of bread more than people could eat. He can heal the sick at a distance. He can raise the dead. What can't he do if he's threatened as under when he was arrested, his father could send 12 legions of angels. For him to bring a political peace is too easy because it would do nothing to our hearts. Those who didn't believe would still be full of jealousy, envy, and hate. And that's what God's program is, is to teach us how to love. He's actually achieving that through all generations. Everyone who dies then goes to their judgment. And if they've received God's grace, they've become a new creation full of divine life. And this is a work worthy of a divine Messiah. So basically, I think the Jews are setting their sights way too low when they, it's through with this carnality and materiality, thinking this world only and not understanding God's promise is something massive. It's huge, much bigger than this world. It's for eternity. But the Antichrist will come seducing people lying about what he'll provide in this world for them. In fact, there'll be artificial problems created. So life will be so hellish that they will create the problems with the solution in mind. So people will feel under pressure to turn to this figure who, who will indeed, th- you know, through every couple of centuries, there's a enthusiasm among the Jews, that, that, among some, that the Messiah is here. And it's always a total disaster. There's, there's only Jesus. Speaking of that, there's this video that was going around the internet about uh, some of these kind of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel believed this man 
alive now, Shlomo something. Mm -hmm. uh, he was the Messiah. And I was watching the videos about it. It was very strange. Like, um, you know, he was, I don't know, they do that bowing their head prayer thing, but he was doing this. He was deep in trance and they would bring babies to, to him before miracles, they would say, and he would play the piano sort of improvising. And uh, it was very strange to watch. I think, you know, North Americans, we have such a view of Judaism based on like sitcoms and stuff, you know, where Jews don't really care. They just kind of have bar mitzvahs and they have matzo ball soup. And isn't that funny? And Jerry Seinfeld's really funny. And that's, I mean, that's like Catholics. A lot of Catholics don't really practice the faith and they just celebrate Christmas. I get it. But when you actually look into the um, deep religious practice of these sort of ultra-Orthodox, it looks very um, mystical and almost Gnostic. Is there mm -hmm. something about it like that? It's, it struck me as that. Very much. And I think people make this mistake as well, that they might have Jewish friends or they see Jewish commentators who sound very, very reasonable and well-informed. And they think, therefore, Judaism is is can't really be a problem but what identifies the group is the rejection of jesus as the messiah and that makes them susceptible to ideas you know ideas are very very powerful and there's only one way to build up a civilization um worthy of the name and that's through adoring jesus christ so the the opposite of that even if it's a very small group among the jews it's very very dangerous like the um the zohar and the kabbalah it's um basically satanism and it it's when i read their text it seems to have the same voice as gnosticism they invent these stories about they basically say one of the gnostics i think it was valentinus that god as we know him yahweh of the bible um was like the 20th of gods, he was de born deformed because his this goddess fornicated with another god, and he was born a, a monster, and he created the world out of hatred, because he couldn't be the best god, and he wanted to hurt the creatures. Basically, that even that he raped Eve, um, it, it's really sick. Anyone who's trying to get behind Genesis one, basically, and tell us what happened before Genesis one. It's from the devil, the, 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 the lies of the devil. And to take any of this seriously, you need to be really spiritually blind. I, I used to wonder why the Arius, for example, was so determined to deny the divinity of Jesus. And to such extent that, you know, the Arians against Athanasius, they were lying about him, like saying that he was corrupt, or fornicating, they would bring lies to destroy him rather than arguments to win a theological argument. I mean, they were absolutely determined to, to assert Jesus is not the son of God. Where does that drive come from? And then I think William Thomas Walsh and um, a German historian, I forget his name, say Arius also was of Jewish descent, like Valentinus. And it, well, this begins to make sense that the um, hatred of Jesus in his day has carried on through the generations. In, and then a willingness to get hold of any alternative story to the one that he revealed. Um, 
And Gnosticism, it's very much alive and it doesn't take many people to practice it in order for it to have a big effect. It's like you only need a couple of really hardcore saints and they can um, impress a whole generation. You know, what God can work through 12 men or through one woman is huge. What the devil can work through a couple of thousand is also huge. So even if you only have a few people offering basically sexual debauchery and sacrifice to the demons that they think that through a sexual excess you can gain wisdom and that by fornication and worse um in a sacred space you can reunite the male and female aspects of the divinity now in christianity there are no male and female aspects of the divinity. There's God. There's three persons. But you get all these crazy Gnostic stories about what happened before creation. And then it leads to this depraved activity on earth. Um, trying to, as if we can heal the divisions in heaven by what we do on earth. This is completely backwards. And also, very bizarrely, through calamities, through disasters you can bring about the redemption. And that's a massive thing in um, Orthodox Judaism and Kabbalah, that through, through calamity, you bring about the redemption so that some people think they actually want to provoke the calamity to bring it on. And this will bring on the Messiah. Okay, there's a lot there. So first thing I want to ask is, we hear a lot about the Kabbalah and the Zohar. Um, Hollywood starlets and things like that love to join the Kabbalah thing and wear the little red bracelet. That's like the special little, that's the respectable Scientology for them. That's their fancy little religion. Um, but the Kabbalah is much deeper than, you know, some crazy actress pr pretending to be a holy person. Um, and the Zohar, I've briefly heard of it. I, I first sort of encountered an a in-depth explanation in your book. Could you break down to us what the Kabbalah actually is, kind of fact from fiction, and what the Zohar actually is in the same sense? I've heard a, a rabbi saying how, like Madonna, for example, she doesn't have a clue about Kabbalah. Um, and I, I think he's right in the sense you do have these people just dabbling, although it's very dark when they do that. F for the rabbis, it's about a secret knowledge, that, um, which, which is the same as Gnosticism. There's this secret knowledge that is given to the adepts and also two kinds of um, I want to say human beings, and this is very relevant to what we see happening in Gaza now. So that with the Kabbalah, there's an idea, Tikkun Olam, to, to, it's called repairing the world, which has many different ways of approaching that in Judaism. But the original meaning is returning the divine sparks. So one of these things that should have happened before creation, there was some um, drama in heaven and these sparks from a chalice i can't remember came down to earth and these are supposed to be the souls of the jews that they come from god they're divine and they need to return to god but it's the souls of the gentiles are made by satan and they're evil for destruction and when you think you're the chosen people which why were the jews chosen because of abraham's faith that's the reason the scriptures give abraham was willing to offer his son isaac 
which anticipates the crucifixion of the God the Father offering his son Jesus in the same place, Mount Moriah, is Calvary. And so whenever the Jews ran into trouble after that, they would pray to God, seeking to return, remember for God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for their sake, have mercy on us and restore us. And when they prayed that sincerely, for Abraham's sake, God would restore them. So they're chosen so that what Abraham did with Isaac would be fulfilled when Virgin Mary conceives and brings Jesus into the world, the son of God, to offer the true and complete sacrifice. And then Jesus chooses people. He chooses his 12. He chooses his disciples to send. He, he says, you've not chosen me, I've chosen you. He chooses Paul. And they're chosen for this mission to go to the whole world so that the elect, the chosen, are of all nations. Um, and anybody can become a Christian, anybody. As God didn't make two kinds of people as if he's made people to be damned and he's made other to be saved. This doesn't interfere with predestination. God knows who's going to be saved and who's not. But he's not made anybody for damnation. And this alternative view of Judaism, you see in the Freemasons, I bumped into three Freemasons on the train in uh, London. I was with an ex-Freemason, so he spotted them a mile off. He said they're Masons. I said, how do you know? He said, look at their ties and look at the briefcases they're carrying, which had their aprons in them. And so I thought, well, I asked them, are you, are you Masons? And they said, yes, and they, they were friendly. But at the end of the conversation, there was a note of um, anger in this guy's face when I asked him, do you think there's two kinds of people in the world? Like, and he totally does, so that the elite can dominate the masses. And there's this song just been put out on Israeli TV. It's called the Friendship Song 2023. They've got all these kids singing about destruction and bombing in Gaza, saying how the planes are flying over bombing. And these are little children singing, saying destruction in a year, there will be nobody left and we will come and take, return to our homes. So they're indoctrinating the Israeli children to think that genocide of the Palestinians is, is something good and a fulfillment of what God has promised to them, that they're the chosen people, that these others are subhuman. Um, it, and it, it goes all, all the way back, I think, to this misunderstanding of what the chosen people were chosen for, and you're chosen for Christ. And if you reject Christ, you've rejected being chosen. And it, inevitably, you look down then on other people um, as a different kind of creation. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've always thought it was a very dangerous thing when I see this rhetoric from the Zionist about God's chosen people and so forth. And it's like, well, that's leave. Well, there's the, there's the Orthodox Jews, the Orthodox rabbis who are against the state of Israel because they have enough sense to say, this is not what we're chosen for. This is not the biblical Israel, et cetera. And we have to be invited back in by God, et cetera. At least they have the sense to believe that, to see that. Um, mm -hmm. But also, you know, I want to ask another question about the, uh, the Kabbalah in a second here, but when I, it's funny, you know, in this day and age, this political climate we're in, you know, this, there's this boogie, boogeyman word called fascism. You know, if anybody is too far right, they're a fascist. Um, but what I see going on in Israel, it looks exactly like some sort of fascism. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's ethnocentric politics 
where you don't really get full participation in the national life unless you're not only a religion, but actually a gene pool. That's the mm -hmm. thing that, because you can't separate the genetic element, the biological relationship, the actual blood relations from the claims about religion. I know there are ways people can convert to Judaism. There is a process sort of like a mock baptism. And then there is the children born into it in two or three generations later. I understand that. That's all. That's fine. But generally speaking, in order to be a Jew, in order to get full citizenship in Israel, or at least it's offered, you have to literally share the same bloodlines. If, if, if anyone else were to say that, I mean, if my mother's an mm -hmm. Italian immigrant, speaking of fascists, and if they were to say, you know, all Italians get free, you can move here only if you're Italian because of your birthright or something like that, people would probably get pretty upset about it. Or if they said, you know, you can't have full citizenship uh, unless you have Italian ancestry. This would just be something people would lose their minds about. But when it comes to this thing, it's like everyone just accepts it. Because it's almost mm -hmm. like everybody implicitly accepts this poor, nonsensical Protestant understanding of the Jews still being God's chosen people. And I think that's also a misunderstanding about what is the promised land. I mean, ultimately, the promised land is heaven, which you get to through the church. So... God wants us to inherit him as he inherits us. To li he lives in our souls. We live in him. And the church on earth is all destined to end in heaven. The church militant, whether through purgatory or not, or directly to heaven. Now, if you think the promised land is just a piece of real estate in the Middle East, um, again, it's setting sights too low, underestimating God. And it does cause what this outrageous um, racism which which puts other racism in the shade when you think that your soul is of a different kind than the soul of other human beings. If I could just read a, a quote that's in the book from Yuri Sleskine, I hope I've said his name right, but he says in the Jewish century, nationalism meant that every nation was to become Jewish. Every single one of them had been wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities from Isaiah. Every people was chosen, every land promised, every capital Jerusalem. Christians could give up trying to love their neighbors as themselves because they had finally discovered who they were, French, Flemish, Swedish. They were like Jews in that they loved themselves as a matter of faith and had no use for miracles. So we see an erosion of Christian faith and Christendom through this idea of nationalism. This is back in the 1800s. And that didn't turn out very well at all by heating up nationalism. And so the Jews searching for an identity then swing the other way en masse. There's always been the two versions to internationalism and globalism, which we, we see today um, as a, an absolute disaster that's a false imitation of the church's universalism. And the, the church, having coming from Christ, who's incarnate, who has a body, but he's this divine spirit united with the human soul and a material body. It can cover every level for our welfare. For example, you have a political entity, which is a nation, a country with fixed borders. But the church is universal because she's not meant to be a political concern. She's concerned with spiritual realities, which don't change from generation to generation. They don't change from continent to continent. So she can be truly universal. But we, we had Jews back in the 1920s talking about Dr. Nahum Solokov, about Jerusalem being the world capital. 
And then Ben-Gurion in 1962, he was asked, I think it was Time magazine, I'm not sure, how will the world look in 25 years? He said, there will be a global police force at the disposal of this federation based in Jerusalem and a shrine to the prophets in Jerusalem for all the world, fulfilling Isaiah. So when you don't see that the Catholic Church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, you try to build a human city, an alternative. It's all in the book. Even worse was Theodore Kaufman, who said that the Jewish people have a mission. This is in 1941. We have a mission to build paradise on earth and to bring perpetual peace. And he said, the way we're going to do that, to bring about this program, is through, he then released his pamphlet, Germany Must Perish. It was a medical genocide of the German people to sterilize the Germans. This is what he's saying in 1941. And by literally wiping out the Germans, by sterilizing them, separating the men and women, spreading the men around the world, not letting the women marry, allied soldiers were supposed to go into Germany, marry the German women. And then he said, the people and their land will disappear from the map altogether. And th this is the idea of how we're going to bring global peace, perpetual peace and paradise. It, so whether you go for globalism or heated up nationalism, neither of them fit the model which Christ gives us through the incarnation and Christendom. So I, I basically think that the world is going to be um, torn to pieces like a dog with a, a rag toy unless we hold on to Christ. And when the Jews convert, it's amazing what they bring to it. You, you know how the Orthodox love tradition, how obstinate they are in keeping tradition. Imagine if that was poured into preserving our traditional Catholic rites or their, their love of the Torah, to be reading it every single day and yet to be reading that in the light of the New Testament. Um, the, the idea of eradicating the Amalekites, total destruction, when that is spiritualized and you see that the enemy are demons and the enemy is your own sin, this is exactly the kind of saints we need and the attitude in the church that you're fighting against the sin in your own soul, that your soul is the promised land where God will dwell. And so you want to wipe out all evil from there with no quarter, none whatsoever for sin. But you don't turn that against other people because another person is never your enemy to the degree that you want to wipe them off the face of the earth. Yeah. Um, the Amalekites, didn't Benjamin Netanyahu just say yeah. something about the Palestinians are like the Amalekites? Yeah. And this is the absurdity of Netanyahu, who's been saying for decades that we want to restore Israel to the biblical borders. So did Sharon before him. In fact, when the Likud party was founded, they were saying, we, we want to restore Israel, greater Israel. So they're talking Syria and Lebanon as well, and the Sinai Peninsula, even a massive area that they think is promised to them by God. And yet these have no interest in God whatsoever. There's, there's a massive cleft between Orthodox or Reformed Jews and then the secular Zionists. Um, and yet it's all born of a rejection of Jesus. You know, people, they contact me and say, oh, you need to distinguish between these Jews and these Jews. But, but that becomes endlessly complicated when in fact the problem is much simpler. When you reject Jesus and try and find an alternative, 
um, it, it's never going to work. And yet you mentioned the Orthodox rabbis, I think, is it Rabbi David Yisrael? Um, he, he says that we should never try to take Israel by force. We should remain in the nations where we find ourselves, live respectfully before their political order and not try and mix ourselves in it. But our job from God is to keep the Torah. That's what a Jew is, someone who's chosen to keep the Torah. This attitude would fit in very well with the church's medieval policy of Sikhat Judaeus, where you can't harm the Jews, um, but they can't gain an upper hand through usury or through political manipulation. So there is um, a possibility of a, a peaceful existence until the end when the Jews convert but not when the Jews want to break out from basically from the rabbis who, who for 1800 years they had a very hard time living under the rabbis and when they want liberation from that and, and achieve it that's why we hear all these voices that religion is bad you need they're trying to oppress you you need to be free from all this oppression that's not the Christian experience. It's a it's a, a foreign idea, a, an, an error. So there's a part in your book. It's called um, "Gentiles and Jews Cannot Share Sovereignty." Now that's mm -hmm. going to be. I want I want to give you my understanding. You can elaborate. So I think people today are starting to realize that there's no such thing as a separation of church and state, at least in the mm -hmm. sense of you cannot leave out the religious question. We've tried. We've tried to do the, the sort of, you know, classical liberal thing where you do you, I'll do me kind of thing. And yes, when you're all some sort of Christian, well, basically, if you're all Protestants, it probably works, generally speaking, because you don't really have dogmas anyway that are kind of infallible and whatever. I mean, if you're one of those hardcore Calvinists, nobody likes you anyway. Um, but it's not really a big deal. You can have Lutherans and you can have Episcopalians and you can have Presbyterians and they can kind of all just get along their different colonies. And there's not really going to be any problems because, because it's not sacramental and so forth. And they don't have the kingship of Christ as an actual thing. They don't have a legitimate authority. You can do the classic liberal thing in a situation like that because it's not really that serious. I'm not advocating for it. I'm just saying I, I, I can see how it worked in America for a couple hundred years because that makes sense. But when you get into what, let's be honest, the only two religions on earth that have any claim of divine truth and origin is Catholicism and Judaism. Obviously, Judaism is Catholicism when it's fulfilled. Nonetheless, if I'm someone who is, who is looking at these two religions, I would say, well, there's only two that I can really say historically go back to Yahweh. Uh, one goes this direction, one goes the other. So if you take that into the political realm, if you hold these religions to be true, if you believe them to actually be binding on your conscience and on your actions, there's no possible way that you can have them both existing and coexisting if they're both active. And I think that's very hard for people to understand. They think when they look back on the church's policies about Judaism and there were restrictions on what Jews were allowed to do, well, here's the thing. Within the Jewish moral code, there are just certain things that are allowed that are illegal uh, for Christians, and the Jews could do them, and vice versa. So perhaps 
you could elaborate on this idea there can't really be a shared sovereignty and why? Yeah, there can definitely be um, the two peoples side by side in peace. Yeah, so we're not saying that um, Judaism can't exist because people can only choose God from free will and that can't be forced out of them, taken away. But the political um, system will never work if you're trying to accommodate both Jews and Christians in it. What happens is the Christians lose their Christianity. So I I think of a baby. When a baby falls over, it doesn't really damage itself. It's almost designed to fall because it's so little bit chubby. When a teenager falls over, it hurts. It's not that bad. When an elderly person falls, it, it could be lethal. So when we mankind is maturing or the church is maturing, to, to make errors earlier on was, was not so disastrous. But we see now in the world, like you said, that people are realizing um, either we have Christ the King or we have hell on earth. And there's going to be no space left in between. It's, it's one or the other. And it perhaps for a few centuries, there was room to play out both ideas, which we have been doing the last few decades, right? This idea religious freedom means that all religions are equal and everyone has a right to it. But that's not what it means. Um, you tolerate error because it would be a greater harm if you tried to stamp it out by, by force. And we've all you know, often been on such a journey ourselves if you want to stamp out error with force, that means eradicating your own self from the past and, and even who knows the, the present. So it's, it's not, um, that's no, no solution. But I, I think the only thing that can work now is Catholic monarchs in union with Rome. Democracy is fake. Democracy is a lie. Parliaments are a lie. They have been for a long, long time. It doesn't mean you can't have a parliament underneath the sovereign. You can. Um, but there needs to be a, a real power so that when Queen Elizabeth II in England signed the Human Embryology and Fertilization Bill, basically, she's betraying the most vulnerable subjects in her realm. And the idea is, well, she has no alternative. She has no power. Parliament can do what it likes. Um, and she has to follow the parliament but the parliament is following the money it's, it's not there for the people it's, it's a de- deception um, but in in a christian order parliament came from christian lands in fact from the monasteries where there would be an element of democracy within the monastery but under the abbot say so you have this mixed system of monarchy and democracy which which can work so i'm i'm drifting a bit from Gentiles and Jews sharing sovereignty. It, it's, not, it's not going to work. Um, we, we just have to look around. It was Chuck Schumer on Capitol Hill recently with a whole bunch of Israeli flags behind him singing, we stand with Israel, we stand with Israel. And basically, American power and money is, is being used for whichever wars the Jews want. It, it doesn't work. So E. Michael Jones had, had this quote from the Civilta Cattolica back in about 1890, any country which turns away from laws based on the teaching of the Catholic Church and God's eternal law 
will end up being ruled by Jews. And that sounds outrageous to, to us if we've grown up in this liberal atmosphere. It's just that it's true. It's happening before our eyes. And I don't mean to have a go at America because England suffered the same thing long before America. Um, going back to the Balfour Declaration, which the foreign secretary was a Christian Zionist, and he writes to tell Lord Rothschild that we will underwrite um, the, the mandate for Palestines to the advantage of the Jews, although it was said at the time that the Palestinians must be protected. All that's gone out the window. And so after World War I, we, England was used and the colonialists, Australians, to kick the Turks out of Palestine. And then the Ergen group starts, blew up the King David Hotel, you know, killed nine shot people. They got two bodies of British sergeants that they'd murdered and booby trapped the bodies so that when the British came to take the bodies, they killed even more. This is where modern terrorism comes from, from Israel. Um, and after World War II, when England is kind of bankrupt, bleeding, exhausted, useless, the Jews don't care because they have America now to project their interests around the world. And it, it's really not politically correct to say this at all. Um, but it's just, it's the facts that we have to face. And I think basically what this book tries to say a lot is it fits what we read in the New Testament. Everything's there in the New Testament. It's a snapshot of the deep spiritual patterns working through men that we see still alive today. So that when Jesus was set up, to be killed, Caiaphas gave the reason, and if, if we don't do this, we'll lose our place and our land, and the place being the temple, and the land being Israel. In fact, they did lose it precisely because they killed Jesus. So they didn't have his way of, the way Christians overcame the Roman Empire was through love and self-sacrifice, and they ended up conquering through martyrdom. But the Jewish idea of conquering the Roman Empire didn't work out. They lost everything. They were expelled. Um, well, also, Father, if I might interrupt, um, what do we see in the scriptures when as soon as the Christians, as soon as the Jews who are Jews become Christians, there immediately begins a campaign of murder. Uh, there immediately begins a campaign of a persecution. You know, we... We forget that, okay, we hear about the Diocletian persecution and under Nero and things like that outside of the Bible. But within the scriptures, there is the evidence of the actual murderous persecution of the Christians by the Jewish authorities. And it happened mm -hmm. since day one. And I have a friend, he's a Christian, seems like he's becoming Catholic. He's got a, um, a big channel, talks about the Bible. Anyway, interesting guy. His name's Sam Shamoon. And when the Israel-Palestine conflict recently popped off, he said, uh, you know, don't be, you know, yes, Hamas is obviously terrible. We all know this. They're a bunch of terrorists. Fine. But he said, don't think that if you, he said, basically, don't think because you're a Christian that the Jews would teach, uh, uh, treat you any better if there was, if the, if the chips were down. And he said, I'm just saying scripturally, I know this is of God. I know I can't deny this. When there is a, a, a spiritually religious and geopolitically Jewish authority, and there are Christians who present a threat to that, then the response in the scriptures is 
is persecution and murder. And this is, you know, politically incorrect or whatever, but Tiller Marshall the other day, he tweeted just, I hope, he basically tweeted something from Ben Shapiro and, and he said, I pray he converts. And that tweet got like a million impression, million views in like a day, like crazy, just went nuts. And so many right-wing conservative religious Jewish commentators were calling him an anti-Semite for saying that he wishes that he would convert. And one of the, one of the commentators, um, you know, she's like some homeschooling mom of like six or seven kids, but she's a right-wing Jewish religious lady, like conservative and just quote tweets and says, this is anti-Semitism. And I'm thinking you're literally, she literally runs a, she runs an organization that is against woke indoctrination of kids through books. That's what she does. She's literally, I think it's called write books for kids. But the point is, is my goodness gracious, you're just a communist. You're just a leftist. You're just an identity politics person when the idea of Judaism is brought up. And there was other people who were, you know, big names in politics and things like that saying, oh, you know, you've tried to get us for 3000 years. You never will. And I thought to myself, this is insane. Like he's, even if you're just someone who has the logical reasoning skills, you know, there's this famous atheist. Penn Gillette, doesn't matter. He's just a famous atheist. And he's friends with Glenn Beck because Glenn Beck's a Mormon, so he can be friends with atheists. And uh, he tells a story how Glenn was telling him, or sorry, Penn Jeanette was telling Glenn Beck why he was annoyed when evangelical Christians wouldn't talk to him about Jesus. And he said, my goodness, you're upset about this now? He thought he was being a liberal about it. You know, what, you're just upset at everything. And he said, no, because I'm not a Christian because I don't believe it. But if I did believe it, I would want me to be a Christian. You know, mm-hmm. it, it offends me that you call yourself a Christian. And he, this is one of the reasons he's not a Christian because he, he doesn't think Christians believe it. He says, if you were really a Christian, you would think I'm going to hell if I didn't believe this. So you best be telling me about this Jesus fella. Otherwise, I don't even think you're my friend. And mm-hmm. But that's just the logic of it. I mean, we're at a point now where if you want Jews to convert, like Ben Shapiro, you're an anti-Semite. When it's the opposite of that, you might call... I mean, you could call Taylor a philo-Semite. He loves Ben Shapiro so much, he doesn't want him to go to hell. And this shows me that the, the dark trajectory we've been taking in the church with all this stupid political correctness over the last hundred years and a complete rejection of any efforts to convert the Jews, which is absurd uh, because, you. I mean, I'm preparing a show, Father, for no salvation outside the church. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm preparing all these documents, and it's very clear. I mean, every, there's a million million documents, million statements, day fide, et cetera. You have to hold the faith. You have to be baptized. There's baptism of desire. There's baptism of blood. These are specific confines, but that's still baptism. You're still incorporated yeah. into the church. It's still the gift of faith imputed supernaturally by God in, in a similar way he would do to, to St. Paul off his horse kind of thing. you know. But the point is, is you have to be in the church to be saved. And maybe you can comment on this, but how do we get to this point where now uh, Christian conservative commentators, Catholics, I've had Catholics call, uh, say he's an anti-Semite for this. How are we at this point where now wanting Jews to become Catholic is somehow anti-Semitism? Um, part of it is the, is the Holocaust. And the story of the Holocaust is that all Gentiles are supposed to believe that we're potential genocidal maniacs, associates of the Holocaust, which the um, I think the World Zionist Federation said in 1945, they hold the entire Christian world responsible for it. And then in 1977, this Catholic priest, Father Gregory Baum, who I just had in a recent video, he was a Jewish convert. 
and he, he was saying um, that, yeah, it's after Auschwitz, it's the entire Christian world that's in need of conversion, not the Jews, and that to convert the Jews is a spiritual holocaust. But th th this is a foreign idea coming out the mouth of a priest. It doesn't come from the church. There is only Jesus Christ for salvation. And yet, um, it, this doesn't mean what my book is concluding with. It's not that we go out there to put any pressure on to Jews. But if we Catholics will not hold our own traditional rights, especially Holy Week and Good Friday, then nothing we do matters anyway. That we need to do this for the sake of our souls and theirs. We need to have the integral Holy Week, which is the best for us. And if we do that, we're going to come against such resistance in the world. We will have to learn to just put Christ first in everything. And it's precisely that, I believe, that will give the impetus for the conversion of the Jews. They, they will see that we're absolutely serious about the faith um, and that keeping our rights on Holy Week is not harming anybody. It's not lifting a finger against anyone. It's being true to God. And it will be effective because God will look at the hearts of him, that, of those who want to keep his ceremonies and his revelation absolutely intact to make any sacrifice to do it. And of course, he'll answer our prayers. And then the, the conversion will happen in God's time. But we've, we've abandoned, the, the book shows how a lot of the liturgy that we've abandoned is under Jewish lobbying and Jewish influence, who are telling us that the Holy Week was anti-Semitic. In the 60s and even going back to the 1920s, they're saying this, and the church capitulated. That's why the liturgy's changed. It's because of Jewish influence that Catholic exegesis has removed its focus on the spiritual to the letter, just to the letter. So you're saying, are these texts historic? What was the history of the time? But we're not looking for the spiritual meaning that the church fathers would have. Even the magisterium, Nostra Aetate, was drafted by four priests, three of whom were Jewish converts. Wasn't Gregory Baum, wasn't Father Gregory Baum one of them? Yeah. 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 And, he left the church too. Yeah. Yeah. And a whole lot of other stuff. He, the Winnipeg statement, he, he was behind the scenes for that. And um, he was gay. Yeah, which he said in his autobiography at the end of his life, he kept this hidden for decades so that he could have more influence as a theologian. So it, it seems that he was insincere from the beginning, planted in there to corrupt and disrupt the church and had a massive influence. And so Catholics, we need to know our faith, hold on to our liturgy, trusting in the power of it, and it will bear enormous fruit. If we try, if any priest tries to pray the pre-55 rites or pray the old prayer for the Jews, he is going to be confronted by people asking questions and the hierarchy putting pressure on him. And he needs to have an answer for that and understand why he's doing it and why no one can change this. And I think that's what's going to make us solid so we can withstand any pressure coming whenever the Antichrist comes. It's like we're, we're holding on to these rights no matter what, even if we have to die for it. So the pre-55 Holy Week, I know there are various um, traditional priests that have permission to do it. Uh, I think it started a few years ago. 
Um, but if I'm not mistaken, there is the, the actual prayer for the Jews was changed, wasn't it? So when, I mean, I don't know, I've heard kind of under the, under the radar, under the table, so to speak, there's the explicit, uh, here's the prayer is supposed to say, but then when they say the right, they just say the, uh, the traditional prayers for the Jews. What's, is, is that true? Like, are they, are you supposed to do the pre 55 Holy week with the new prayer? Wouldn't that kind of make the whole enterprise not really, that's not the, that's kind of missing the point. It, it is missing the point um, because th that prayer has been changed more than any other prayer in the liturgy over the last hundred years, several times, every time diluted and weakened until in 2008, after Samorum Pontificum, Pope Benedict had said priests can use the 62 missile. And, and that prayer was more or less intact there. Um, and then Jews complained, as well to many Catholics who've taken on the Jewish idea that praying for their conversion is somehow anti-Semitic, which is nonsense. So he composed a new prayer, which was much better than what Paul VI had put out there, which is a disaster. Um, but it still, it, it no longer mentions, for example, the blindness of the Jews or removing the veil from their hearts. And if we're not praying about this, then the veil is not going to come away from their hearts. Um, that there's so much in the New Testament about this blindness, that the Gentiles too were blinded by sin until Christ came to give us light. And, and that those Jews who rejected Jesus, their hearts were then veiled. So on, on Good Friday, we're praying for this veil to be removed. And yet that hasn't been done since, um, I, I can't remember exactly which changes in the 50s. I think it was when a genuflection was put in. And in the 60s, they ceased talking about the veil. Um, and Benedict's prayer didn't have that. And this notion that the, the Vatican can give permission to apostolates to say the pre-55, I think even that, is a misunderstanding about a priest in good standing can say the ancient rites of the church. He doesn't need permission from the Vatican to do it. And the, the only condition imposed on these 50 apostles given permission to do this in 2018 was that they say the Easter ceremonies at the modern times, like in the evening for whatever the vigil, and they do use the modern prayer for the Jews with a genuflection. And I'll I'll do my own videos in the coming weeks in detail about this genuflection, why it's so important. You're basically being asked to bow to Zion, to kneel to Zion. Um, it's that you can have everything you want of your tradition as long as you kneel to the Jews. It's, it's terrible. And Benedict wrote or in his interview with Peter Seewald, he said why he composed this new prayer. He said it was to... Um, because our Jewish friends were being wounded by the old prayer. Basically, he's giving the same reason that Cardinal Mary Duval rejected in 1928 when the amateur Israel said, please change the prayer. And Pius XI almost did, but Mary Duval said, you cannot change the ancient liturgy to please the world, and especially not the Jews when they're subverting the church. You, you don't have the authority to do that. And yet that's why... Benedict, who was so gentle, who had such a, a, a love for the Jews, he's willing to change it so as not to wound them. But only in this life, where does that leave them for eternity? And as the suggestion is that the church didn't care for 1700 years about wounding the Jews, which is a terrible calumny.
That's that's absolute lie against God. It's a lie against God. So we need to put God first, keep our old prayer, pray it with charity, um, and recognize the facts of it. So this word perfidious is the single best possible word you can have in that prayer. It means against the faith, perfidy, as perjury is to break one's oath. The Jews have a different position than the infidel, which means infides, without faith. And so another of those priests who drafted Nostra Aeterti was uh, Father Johann Osterreicher. He gave an explanation of why you can translate perfidious as faithless, meaning without faith, as if some heathen or infidel who'd never heard the gospel. And he, he's, he, it's quite reasonable what he wrote, except his conclusion is, misses the point of what happened on Good Friday, that the Jews had been called through the Old Covenant to welcome Jesus. and instead they're stirred up to crucify him. This is something different to someone who's never had the calling, never had the gospel, someone without faith like that. And the Good Friday prayers distinguish between schismatics and heretics who fall away from the new covenant, from those who've never heard the new covenant, and from those who have the old covenant but reject the new. And so you need a specific word for it. So perfidy, which could, could mean treachery, is what happened on Good Friday. They crucified their king. That's treachery. That's treason. And if we're not willing to say that, the reason we're not willing to say it is because we're scared of the world crushing us. It's not out of love of Jesus or love of truth. It's, it's this fear of the Jews, basically. And that's why we want to change the meaning of perfidy. But if I want to say very clearly, no, crucifying Jesus was treason. Um, what do I care what anyone can do to me if we're trying to speak the truth of the gospel. And it, on that day, the Jewish leaders had the crowds whipped up to shout, crucify him, crucify him. Now, in churches around the world on Good Friday, in the Novus Ordo, the faithful are supposed to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. As the gospel is recited, the passion is read. It's the same treachery on that day, that Good Friday, that had the king crucified and the crowds whipped up to call for it, is happening now in the church where we prefer not to provoke the anger of the Jews and the accusations that we're haters or anti-Semite. We're so scared of that that we will give up our liturgy and give up our prayers. This, but I don't believe that's going to continue. I don't believe God wrote history for it to fail miserably. I think we will realize everything's at stake here. Um, so, Father, this reminds me. So, talking to one of our priests, you know, about, you know, obviously I'm, I'm traditional Catholic and, and all that. And whenever you find in traditionalism a family or a person who begins to have doubts about traditionalism, um, or starts to have familial problems within the traditional movement, you think to yourself, what's going wrong? What's going, how, how could it not be working? They're going to first Friday. They're going to first Saturday. They don't go to the Novus Ordo. I mean, they're doing all the things, you know, they, they wear skirts, you know, they've got all these things going on. Where is the crack in the dam? And it's always, it always comes down in my opinion and talking to this priest, we were having a conversation. It always comes down to one thing. And it's the world got in. So mm. 
Yes, the family is traditional, but the kids are listening to secular music. Uh, because you have to understand, too, uh, the devil's going to work extra hard to get you if you're a traditional Catholic because he's got everybody else. Not everybody, but you know what I mean? It's He's already, you know, the world is is well within the Novus Ordo. It's, it's worldliness, uh, you know, up to your eyeballs. Um, so it takes just a little crack. And you find this, you know, uh, this family, what's wrong? You know, well, uh, they've got cable. It's like, well, we, we selected the shows. Yeah, but you're still seeing commercials. It's like you, you can't even have these little things because you can't bring the worldliness in because it doesn't fit. And when you look at what happened with Christ, they have a choice between Barabbas, which means son of the father, or they have a choice between Bar Abbas, right? Or they have a choice between Christ, who's the actual son of the father. Mm-hmm. And they choose the worldly son of the father. They choose the actual criminal. And not, you know, Bar- Barabbas is portrayed as just some toothless idiot who likes to murder people. No, he's actually a, a leader. Revolu- this is what I've understood from reading the commentary. He's a revolutionary leader who was... Yes, he's a murderer, but he's he's basically a, a a terrorist. He's basically a freedom fighter, so to speak. You know, against the against the 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 um the Romans. They choose when you choose the worldly path, you will necessarily become antichrist. You cannot have Christ in the world. You have to reject the world. And one of the biggest, most annoying things I see. I was just, I just did a show this morning. Father Nolan of the Fraternity of St. Peter, he did a, uh, a a sermon, very good, on can the Pope be a heretic and so on and so forth. And he showed, basically, he said, well, at least in the small age sense, in the sense of not, not ex-cathedra promoting erroneous teachings, he's like, this has clearly happened. How could we have 600 years or 1,000 years of talking about Pope Honorius being anathematized in perpetuity for what he did? And what I thought was so fascinating about his teaching is I was thinking to myself, or his sermon, I was thinking to myself, okay, what are the mainstream Novus Ordo apologists going to do with this if they dress it at all? They're going to, they're, they're trapped because Father Nolan, it was perfectly doctrinal. He was, he didn't cross any lines. It was perfectly citation, this citation. It was just, it was great. And you're either going to have to reject the fact, you're, sorry, you're either, you're either going to have to say Father Nolan's wrong and say that what he said isn't true but then you're going to reject a ton of church history, which is a problem. Or you're going to have to say, yes, it's true that in the divine office for a thousand years, they talked about Pope Honorius being a heretic, but that was wrong. And then you're going to get into a position of, hold on a second. You're trying to defend against this. You're trying to defend the church against this idea of indefectibility by saying it's never possible for the Pope to be a heretic, but you've just imputed a thousand years of error on the church. Yeah. And I see something similar here, and it drives me crazy, Father. People just don't follow their arguments through. They don't follow the logical conclusion. Perfidious means against the faith. Necessarily, if you have one of the testaments and reject the second one, you're against that second one. It's just basic language. It's not racist. It's not anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Like what you, you demonstrated it perfectly. Also, St. Paul is in the Bible, and they, he's blinded by Christ as a punishment mm-hmm for his blindness in his heart. So obviously we must pray for the Jews to be relieved from the blindness. When St. Paul is baptized, the veil, the scales come from his eyes. So I just don't understand how 
someone can be a, a logical person and come to this liberal modernist understanding. I just, I'm at a loss for it. I have the reason. <laughs> what is it? It's because not many have the courage of Father Nolan. He's a yeah, brave man. That's brave true. Brave man before the seminary and a brave priest when he's in there. He's awesome. So that on Good Friday, of course, the people didn't want Jesus crucified. But they were whipped up because they were uh, afraid. You know, the pressure was put on them. Maybe some were bribed, but others, it was like, you will do this. And so, yes, when we listen to the world, the voice of the world, it's trying to separate us from Christ. M maybe a, a note almost to finish on, although we want something positive, is the, the blindness, I think, is an analogy for what people experience here on earth of what the devil has forever. We're made for the beatific vision to see God. Now, Lucifer never saw God. He fell before the angels were granted that vision, which was a reward for those who were obedient. And he never can see God. He never will see him. And when that is played out on earth, it's this spiritual blindness, which is a mystery, by the way, which is one reason why I don't think there's any point pushing the Jews too hard about converting. Like, not, we have to be praying for it properly. That's our job. But that veil is not going to be removed without our prayers. So if we're not praying for it, I think any mission to the Jews is a waste of time. We've got to get our, our house in order. Um, and then, and then it, will, it will come. But God's going to let the, the world turn to an apparent disaster just before that. So it's very clear that this perfect ending that he brings about is by his power and his grace. So I was muted. Okay. Yes. All right. So let's end with, um, well, let's end with the end. Um, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, the link for this book is in the description to the video. I have it right there. Um, so the best possible end to human history, mm -hmm. that's a section in your book. And that is about, well, what is that? Why don't you tell us? Um, it's, it will include the conversion of the Jews because this story has been going on since Cain and Abel of the two brothers, the elder brother and the younger brother. And then Judaism is the elder brother. Basically, Christianity is the younger brother. And Cain is lost. But we see a development with other sets of brothers through the Torah. You know, from thus Genesis 4 about Cain and Abel. And then you have Noah and his sons the brothers um from genesis 6 to 9 i think and then from genesis 12 on it's all about abraham even his there's a hint to his brothers but about his sons and isaac and ishmael then esau and jacob and then joseph and his brothers and then through the whole of the rest of the torah exodus to the end it's about moses and aaron very much it's very much about brothers and the, the, the clearest prefiguration of the conversion of the Jews is with Joseph suffering so that he could save his brothers. And finally, they recognize him. Again, there's that blindness. When Joseph's brothers saw him in Egypt, they didn't recognize him, which is amazing as your brother. He was dressed as an Egyptian, maybe had an Egyptian accent by then. I don't know. But they mistook him as this worldly power. And yet, finally, they recognized, ah, this is Joseph, our brother. That's how the Jews will see the church 
who they've thought the Catholic Church is some oppressive worldly power. And finally, they will see, ah, no, this is the body of Christ, our Messiah. Um, and it will be part of the defeat of the Antichrist deception, which might well involve this Jerusalem as a world capital with a Supreme Court of, for mankind, said Ben-Gurion back in the 60s, um, and a world police force at its disposal. That's not going to be pretty at all. And if people are sucked into Zionism like Protestants are, to think this is some fulfillment of the Old Testament when it's the opposite, or it's a reduction to the material excluding the spiritual. So excluding the massive better part. Um, but all that will, will cause its own failure if Catholics will hold on to, to what they've been given so that this alternative is, is available. And, and let's face it, the Jews are very energetic and have a big vision. And when they support Christ fully, love him to pieces, then th that will, imagine the Catholic Church and the Jews united. It's like the unstoppable force and the immovable object together. It's, that's just gonna fill the world, fill the world. Well, it just shows you how silly this ecumenism has been the last 70 years. Uh, having all our efforts on stupid joint declarations with Lutherans, et cetera, et cetera, when um, it should have just been all about converting the Jews. And um, well, the expression, the corruption of the best is the worst. So I guess the reverse is the reformation or the restoration of the worst is the best. Um, well, that's what so, St. Paul said, right? When yes. he, in Romans 11... When he said, if their falling away has meant um, the coming in of the Gentiles, what will the meaning of their being grafted back in mean? Except, I think he said, life, life for the world. And this, this, I think, is the ending of human history. Well, that's good. Um, okay, wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, it is November 21st as we record this. It'll probably be up the 22nd or 23rd plenty of time to order this for Christmas. Um, maybe don't give it in a gift wrapping that you open in front of your whole family if you've got a member on the fence about this stuff. But if you know someone who wants to read about these things, um, get them a get, get them this. It is amazing. Uh, Father's not only um, not only insightful as far as the information, like the stuff you're hearing here, but his writing style is quite good as well. Um, and he does spell color with a U. Um, so, you know, I can give it, uh, my praise for that as well. I don't want any of this modernist. I don't like modernist. American is just, you know, American English is just Nova Sordo English in my opinion. So I just always stick to the, uh, well, I guess it's the King's English now, not the Queen's English. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, in any case, father, thank you for this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as always, uh, let me know what you think in the comments, check out father's book. This has been the Kennedy report until next time. God bless.